0: Welcome to On My Own Dime. I'm your host, Jason McCormack. Today I'm speaking with author Rachel Harrison about life, getting published, and her debut horror novel, The Return. I wanna preface this episode with some context around artistic integrity and financial stability. Providing a safe home and a financial foundation to live on is an afterthought for a lot of young creators. It's common for us to live at or below the poverty line for years before taking action. I've noticed recently, some have built separate earning careers from their creative work, alleviating the burden of financial stress that sometimes comes with retaining artistic integrity. I used to believe artistic integrity and financial stability were mutually exclusive things, but they are not. It's okay to want a future and a safe home and be an artist. Rachel's going to tell us what it looks like to recognize the tipping point that drives many creators away from their work and why it's important to be open to opportunities that could help us build a better foundation to work from. So let's get into it. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you. You're so casual. You emailed me like four minutes after our meeting time. Like, oh, are we still doing this?
1: (laughs) Well, I don't. I'm very type A and I always assume that everybody else isn't. So I was like, I'm not gonna bother him. I'll just ask because <laughs> if I worry about being too like, hey, are we still on? <laughs> People being like, yeah, relax.
0: I guess you probably have to be type A to be like independently published, right?
1: Um, it depends. I think a lot of writers I know are pretty type A. I worked at Penguin Random House in contracts years ago before I ever got published. A lot of writers, they'll have a deadline and they'll just blow past it and have extensions and stuff. And the idea of that keeps me up at night. <laughs> like I can, the idea of like being like, I'm not going to get this in on time. Uh, I, I can't handle it. I would always like peek at like George R. R. Martin's page and be like, when's he going to turn in the next Game of Thrones book? And I was like, oh, he's been filing extensions on his contract for like eight years. Oh, wow.
0: Did he, he... I guess he never finished, right? HBO just kind of finished it for him?
1: I think what happened is he told them kind of like what he had in mind and they got there, but how they got there was kind of
0: mangled. Well, let's change gears. Can you introduce yourself and tell us um, like who you are, where you're from, and what you do?
1: Sure, so my name is Rachel Harrison. I am from Mount Olive, New Jersey, and I am an author. And I have two books out, The Return and Cackle. um, And I've also written some short stories, um, Goblin, Good Bones, and The Veil, which is uh, available via Audible.
0: Oh, I didn't know about your short stories. That's exciting.
1: The short stories, two are up on my website. You can just click them and read them. And then The Veil, I think you have to have a subscription to Audible to listen to that one.
0: Okay. I know you worked in publishing first, but do you want to take us from, like, working in publishing full-time to publishing your first book?
1: Sure. Um, So I think it's interesting, and and when I was listening to your episode with Ray earlier, I think it's really fascinating just how different people get involved with art and their paths. And my path, like most, was very messy. Uh, I went to school for... Screenwriting and my senior year of college, I did a semester in LA. I went to college at Emerson in Boston and they have an LA program. So I did first semester of my senior year, I was in LA and I interned at Focus Features and Script Development. I was pretty set on that path and I thought like this is what I'm gonna be doing. I won a screenwriting contest in college and it was for a horror screenplay. And so I was feeling pretty good at the time. I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to be doing. I loved working in development. I felt very set on my path. And then I graduated, and instead of staying in L.A., I moved back to the East Coast. I moved to New York, mostly because I had all my family, and everybody I knew was on the East Coast. I was just very intimidated by L.A., and I was also dating somebody, and I was like... In retrospect that was probably more of a factor than at the time I was willing to admit and we broke up pretty much as soon as I got back Uh, such as life so I graduated a semester early so I came back from LA
0: I was in New York I got confused you were dating somebody in New York while you were in LA they were still in Boston oh in Boston sorry on the East Coast
1: yeah I was like okay I want to move back to New York so I can be Closer to my family, I'm more familiar with New York, I'm more comfortable in New York.
0: Yeah, you're kind of like a lone wolf in LA.
1: Yeah, it's just intimidating. It's such a big city. In New York, when you're young in New York, you can kind of just walk everywhere and find places, but in LA, you need to know where you're going. So if you're young and you don't know people who already live in LA, you don't really know where to go. So when I was there that semester, my friends and I would go to like the same bar on the strip every week because that's the only place we knew and it's not like you can like stumble upon a gem really you have to have a destination we just didn't know what we were doing it's hard to discover a city like that when you kind of need a guide it was just tough being there the driving is intimidating it's like a totally different world i was used to driving in new jersey and driving in la is totally different so it was just a lot for me at 21. so i came back after I graduated. I graduated early, so I graduated in December of 2010. And so I moved back, I was in New York, and this path that I was on, the screenwriting path, it's much harder to find those jobs in New York City. There are a lot of inns in LA. In New York, it was tougher.
0: Right, LA is kind of the epicenter of everything film production. A lot of my friends in music have moved out to LA because they wanted to be more involved in film music, uh, which seems kind of weird now with the pandemic. Yeah, Everything's remote anyway, but it's still a thing.
1: Yeah, there's just way more opportunity there. I think if I had committed, and was when I was there that fall semester, if I had gotten into the mindset like, I'm gonna stay here, maybe I could have made it work, but I think I had it in my head when I was there that like I'm not gonna make this a long-term thing. Like I always kind of knew I was gonna go back and wanted to be in New York. I was like, LA isn't my vibe. I mean, I probably should have sucked it up and stayed, but um, I came back and I really struggled to find a job. Instead of like waiting for the right opportunity, I was pretty panicked about not having something right away. So I just kind of took the first job I got, which was um, as a production assistant on The Newlywed Game, which is still on the air at least it was in 2011, it was not a glamorous job. I was commuting into the city from New Jersey. The TV studio was across from Penn Station and like the Pennsylvania Hotel. And like it used to be where they shot Maury. And it was just like, not what I had in mind. It was like 14 hour days. Um, It was good experience, it was hard work. They kind of just say, do this and you have to figure it out by yourself, uh, which was good for me and looking back it was a fun time but i was panicked about not being where i wanted to be like i was in a creative field but i wasn't being creative and i didn't know how to map being a production assistant on a game show to being involved with screenwriting or any creative part of film and tv so that would keep me up at night from there i worked on another game show Again, it was one of those things where, okay, like I'm 21 on my own, and I need money, so I'm just going to take whatever job I can get, whatever opportunity. and that was another game show. And then after that, somebody I had worked with on the newlywood game was working at a lighting design company, and they needed like a essentially like a front desk person, and I needed money, so I took that job, and at the time, I'd moved to Astoria with one of my friends and So I was living in Astoria and I was working at this TV lighting company and everyone there was miserable (laughs) and was a lot of turnover, at least in the production side, um, in the office. And I was just sitting behind a desk all day for like 10 hours a day. I didn't get any natural light. There was no windows and basically was just answering phones. It sucked. And especially because living in New York City just is like a whole other layer of tough, yeah, because everything is so expensive. But when I moved to this city, I was paying eight fifty in rent a month, and I think my subway pass was like a hundred bucks. And like I had two roommates, and I lived in Astoria, but I lived off the train. It was a nice apartment. I don't know if you could find that now. and i I often wonder, like how anybody is an artist living in New York City. Cause it's so tough like even if you're like out all the way out in Bushwick now can you find an apartment that's $800 a month like
0: I probably wasn't very good at searching but I couldn't find that in 2012 2011 I was renting people's living rooms like I was paying rent for people's couch yeah I would pay like 450 a month to sleep on somebody's couch who I found on Craigslist
1: yeah in general I'm kind of bitter about that whole situation but i think that's a big jaded millennial problem
0: perhaps (laughs) but
1: um it was frustrating and especially because you know if you graduated any time after 2008 the job market was tough yeah it was really hard to get a job and i would sit at the lighting company i (laughs) hope they never listened to this but i would apply i'm sure they knew i would apply to jobs all day and i remember telling my mom like i'm I'm miserable. I was depressed probably because I had zero sunlight and because I was stuck in this job that I wasn't fulfilling. I wasn't on a career path. I was panicked. It felt bleak. I would tell my mom about it and she'd be like, well, are you applying to jobs? I'd be like, yes, like you have no (laughs) idea. I'm applying to like 50 jobs a week and just sending resumes into the void. And it just felt impossible to climb out of this hole and when you're in your early 20s everything feels permanent as you get older you realize like nothing is permanent and once you get out of certain situations you look back and you you have the the hindsight to know like of course that wasn't forever but when you're in it (laughs) and you're showing up to this place you don't want to be every day it's tough and i was writing at the time, and that was kind of when I transitioned to writing prose instead of screenplays, because I thought, well, maybe I'll have better luck writing prose and getting short stories published. Screenwriting and writing prose are very different. I've always had a lot of ideas. Like, I grew up watching The Twilight Zone. I always have like big hooks that might work in a screenplay, but writing prose, it's, it's different. So it took me a while to get to the point where my work on a sentence level was developed. And while I was doing that, because I was working this job I hated, writing felt desperate. It felt like this was my way out and I needed to do it and it needed to work or else I was going to be at this miserable job forever, which kind of made writing not fun anymore. I don't know if you've ever experienced that.
0: Because you needed it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there were definitely times, like the last internship I did, because every time I moved to a different studio, I, you, you start at the bottom again, and I had bounced around to like seven or eight. My last one, I was just so over being treated that way all the time. It, it was pretty frustrating, but I felt like I had to take that because there was nothing else for me unless I wanted to keep being a lifeguard. For the rest of my life yeah so but but that didn't really pan out very well like that particular one the hours the treatment it just got worse and worse the whole team was in their early 20s so i was like one of the oldest people on it i think i was 24 and the owner was 23 and the rest of the people were like 21 22 um which felt really great when we were starting There was just a lack of maturity and a lack of, like, foresight when it came to planning projects. And we were building the studio, so that was a a mess. It was fun, but it wasn't professional, you know? Uh, And then we moved the studio across town, and things got even worse. They were really fun, but, like, I wasn't treated like a professional, and things didn't happen in professional ways. So there was a lack of maturity there, and the frustration just... I, that was the last internship I ever did, and after that, I've just done like my own projects for myself, which is why I've always needed a full time job because that doesn't really cover any any of my expenses. Yeah. So, but the flip side is, since I don't work for anybody, I just make it for myself. I just be doing projects that I care about. It doesn't often feel like work for me anymore because I know I don't need it to pay my bills. Because of that also, like my work work, it feels very hard to show up sometimes.
1: I relate to that. So after I finally got out of the lighting company I worked at, I took a temp job at McGraw-Hill, the textbook publishing company, and I worked in contracts and from there, I was able to get a job at Penguin Random House working in contracts, which felt exciting because I would show up to work every day and you walk through the lobby and there's just these two story high lobby with all books and bookshelves. And it, I felt like I was getting closer to being somewhere I wanted to be. But I was still just in contracts. <laughs> so it wasn't creative, but it was good experience. And I loved everybody I worked with. And it was a great environment. And I love that job. But publishing doesn't pay very well, which is an industry-wide problem. It gets talked about a lot, but I don't know how much the needle is moving. Living in the city, you need money. <laughs> like, it was, I wasn't getting paid a livable wage to live in New York City.
0: I don't know anything about the publishing industry. Could you maybe give your two cents on why? Like who's making the money when books sell? If it's not writers and it's not people in publishing, who else is there?
1: Some writers make good money. I only know so much about it and I only have my experience to go off of, so I can't really speak to the industry as a whole. I don't think there's you know, Scrooge McDuck at the top. I don't think the industry is lucrative enough that some people are really swimming in it. For me, like, I think if I got into publishing right after college, I could have had, you know, tiny raises up until, but I started when I was 25 at like a a starting salary. So I was kind of already behind. I, personally, I think they should move publishing out of New York City, because if you pay somebody that somewhere else, it would be a livable wage.
0: Yeah, I think that's a problem in every metropolitan area. It's like we have these beautiful downtown areas with nice offices and nice restaurants and every single day we shuttle a bunch of people in from out of town because they can't afford to live there and they work all of the jobs in the service industry and lesser earning industries or parts of industries that earn less and then they shuttle back out in the evening but nobody can afford to live where they work in cities. It's like that in Boston, New York, and San Francisco, I could say from being there. And I'm sure it's like that in Chicago and Portland and other cities.
1: Yeah. And it's tough because like there were a lot of commuters and publishing, working in publishing, they make up for the salaries in other ways. They like great benefits, great benefits, great vacation time. The schedule was pretty, ch- I mean, I worked in contracts, so I can only speak, but like, you know, we got an hour lunch break and everybody took the hour. Like, it, it wasn't, like, it wasn't, nobody gave you a hard time for taking your lunch, nothing like that. Um, it was a great experience to work there. Just starting when I was 25 at a starting salary and living in New York City, I just knew, like, long term, it wasn't going to work, and it was tough because at the time, a lot of my friends were making more money than me. So like, I'd get asked to go out to dinner, and I'd be like, "Well, I can't. I can't afford it," and that it it, it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it sucked, and I I didn't have any money to do anything. But it was hard because a chasm started forming between me and and my friends, where it was like, I have to sit out and then I'm feeling left out and it makes me insecure about my situation and it started to make me feel bad in ways that maybe it shouldn't have but it's hard not to compare yourself to other people when you're in your 20s I think especially in your early 20s. And I I just started to get panicked about the future, about, like, am I going to be able to provide for myself long term? What can I do to get myself into a position that I feel happy and fulfilled? Because, yes, I was in publishing, but I wasn't creatively fulfilled. And also, I wasn't—it's not like I sold out and, like, at least was being able to be comfortable.
0: (laughs) Right, you were like— in between these two things right and my least favorite thing about being in that situation is when your friends are like well oh if you can't afford it like i'll pay for your meal or i'll pay for your gas i'll pay yeah offering to do whatever to get you there and it's like you have to just like relinquish your pride in yourself totally to let somebody or for me i never want to let somebody pay for me and they never they don't want to like leave me out just like you said you're comparing yourself to like these other people and now they're offering to pay for you for you to come to come spend time with them and it's sucks that's my least favorite it's thing
1: more of a men- yeah it's more of a mental hurdle too because you're like because i like i would be content to like go to someone's apartment and just hang out mentally you're like did i do something wrong that i'm in this position where i can't keep up. Did I make the wrong choices and they made the right choices? I think it was in addition to the to the financial aspect of it, there's like an emotional aspect of it where it creates this doubt, especially if you're pursuing the arts. I think it adds another layer to like I'm not where I want to be and that sucks. <laughs> like that, that's not I'm not where I envisioned I would be. And kind of all of that creeping in and kind of adding insult to injury, I guess. But because of that, my best friend's stepmother worked at a big bank, and she needed an assistant and was just looking for whoever. Like, I just want somebody who's going to show up and be reliable. My friend passed it along, and I was like, okay, like that's going to pay me more than I'm making now like I'm not gonna have to stress out about whether or not I can afford deodorant like yeah <laughs> I'll, I'll check it out like I I and it was the best decision I ever made because when, like when I was growing up I was like it would be my worst nightmare to like work in a corporate office but it was one of the greatest experiences ever I met some amazing people I had a great team It was not creative at all, and it allowed me in my free time to be the most creative. And it eliminated some of the stress of the rest of my life because I didn't have to worry so much. Like, I could save money. (laughs) And so it was nice to be able to be in a position where I wasn't, I didn't have as much stress. And so it allowed me to be more creative in the way that you're saying, where, you know, your your creative projects are just for you. I, I, I didn't feel like I was writing to save my life because I my life was going okay. And the office was in Brooklyn. And, you know, I could take the bus to work. I didn't have to take the subway. And I just, like, had a good thing going on. It was just, like, really... Like, the rest of my life and my routine and my days kind of fell into place, and so it allowed me, when I was writing, to be like, yeah, I'm doing this because I love it, not because I feel like I have to, to try and get out of a bad situation or because I feel like if I don't, I'm failing, and that was really when i started to write more and to get into the creative space that i am now and i wrote the return and cackle while i was at that job so that's kind of like a very very long answer to your original question of how i got to to be where i am now
0: i like long answers and in the last (laughs) like four minutes that was so densely packed with stuff i could talk about for hours (laughs) i think that illustrates too this unique not problem but this thing that happens where like you're just putting out this huge volume of resumes to try to find something that would allow you to do the work that you want to do and allow you to cover your expenses and just kind of take some of the stress off and nothing was sticking and then a little further down the road somebody's like hey i need an assistant so it's a little bit of somebody you know But the key thing is like just an actual opportunity instead of like into the void, just like shelling out resumes, which feels like the only thing I've had several periods in my life where it's like that felt like the only thing I could do because I didn't have any genuine opportunities in front of me except to lifeguard or teach swim lessons or do something else of a similar wage. But that opportunity is, like, a lot of times what's missing for people.
1: Yeah, I got, I mean, it was an incredible luck. I mean, really, it was incredible luck. I couldn't be more grateful that it fell into my lap, basically. I kind of wish that I kind of thought to apply to those jobs earlier instead of trying to apply to be, like, get into a writer's room when I was in New York City because there were probably hundreds of people just like me trying to get into those jobs where maybe there wasn't as much competition to just be an administrative assistant at like a a bank. Earlier in my 20s, I might have been closed off to be like, I don't want to work at a bank. There's no future there. But meanwhile, yeah, I'm working for the man, but like they're paying me a livable wage. I'm, I'm valued and there's, like a very clear system in place of like, I mean, it's a lot of bureaucracy, but it's very clear. And I think in a lot of creative fields, it's kind of, there's less structure. So I was so stuck in my early twenties on being like, I want a job in a creative field. Instead of being like, I don't, I just need a job, like a steady job. And then I can be creative on the side and see what comes from that. So I don't know if I would have been as lucky to get the job that I got, but maybe there was something if I had been more open to, to being like, I can just work at like an insurance company or a bank and have it be dull and have no one there understand my references and it's fine. And I can just do that nine to five. And in my spare time, I can be creative.
0: Yeah. I'll say something that won't help the millennial stereotype at all. I don't think I was content to like be grateful. Like I, I had several jobs in manufacturing in upstate New York and they they were fine. I was, work, I was working a wage like 10 to 12 bucks an hour and I lived with my parents. Like no, I could have just done that until I had enough money to get my own place and like keep working part-time at studios. I just was too young and too like, ready to go for my, like to do something in music. I just couldn't be grateful to like have that opportunity. It wasn't good enough. Basically like I, I felt entitled to something else because I tried so hard for so long to have that something else all the while, like when I was that young, I never would have called myself entitled or said that I felt entitled. I would have said, I felt like I earned it. I earned the chance to have an opportunity to do the work and that's all like that's what I wasn't getting but now I'm super grateful that I have a trade like I have a secure life I don't have a lot of that stress that I used to have and it kind of makes it so that I can really enjoy like if I'm doing something when I'm not at work it's because I really want to be doing it exactly when I was younger anything I would have been doing it would have been out of the mentality of like I have to do this otherwise I'm not a real musician
1: yeah Uh, yeah absolutely and i felt that a lot in my early 20s where it didn't feel like i had the luxury of time it felt like if i'm not doing this i'm failing
0: isn't it funny too how like i don't know if you were like this but even when i when i was 17 i remember thinking like yeah well if i haven't made it by like 23 you know i'm pretty much done
1: (laughs) yeah i wanted to be on those like 30 under 30 lists.
0: Yeah, I really thought that like everybody should make it by the time they're like, like before their mid 20s, if you haven't made it, you're not going to. Whatever made it means.
1: Yeah, it definitely felt like I was up against the clock, especially because I like the way school is structured, at least in my experience in this, you know, growing up in the States. The way you succeed, it's like if you study really hard you're going to get a good grade and then if you get into a good school and if you do x y and z you're going to succeed I absorbed all of that and went into college and thought if I do x y and z I'm going to succeed and then I did x y and z and then I graduated and I was like I'm like its four in the morning and I'm in a TV studio carrying something that's like my weight, like alone, <laughs> and like, how did I end up here? like this isn't and I'm again, like as we were talking about being entitled, like I'm so grateful I had that experience because it made me tough and it I like to work hard and it made me feel good and it was rewarding, but I think at the time there was a lot of panic about you know if if I had known then that like. If you keep going, you're going to like reach some of your creative goals. I would have enjoyed it 10 times more because I would have been like, okay, like the worry would have been gone. But as I was doing it, I was just like, all I could think of is like, I'm supposed to be, you know, in a writer's room or like working on screenplays. And, you know, instead I'm like getting coffee burns on my arms. (laughs) Like, so
0: it's very hard to look past the opportunity cost of what you have to do. Yeah, versus what you wish you were doing no matter how old you are I think like I still have trouble with that every time I get sent away for a few months at work I'm like it's just really hard for me to look past like okay I immediately process what I'm gonna miss like if it's Christmas or like springtime when the waterfalls are running or stuff like that it's just the first thing that happens to my mind is like the opportunity cost of what I'm gonna miss And definitely when I was younger, if I had to take a full-time job, I always saw just, what is this costing me for creative opportunities? Just not being available, basically.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think when you're younger too, like now, a few months doesn't seem quite as scary. But like when you're 20, you've only had so many a few months. (laughs) So it feels longer. (laughs) Now the years go like that, but...
0: I want to back up and ask you something about what you said earlier, how when you're screenwriting versus writing prose, there's a lot different.
1: So when you're writing a screenplay, it's different on a sentence level. It's a lot of short, choppy, they are here, they are going there. This is what the set looks like. Setting in a few sentences and then dialogue, 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 dialogue. dialogue, So it has to be like
0: anything that's not dialogue has to be very concise.
1: There are some screenplays, I think, where they they get a little bit more verbose, but generally it's high concept, it's like a minute a page, so a two-hour movie would be 120 pages. It's not as much on the page. You have to accomplish more with less, and then when you're writing prose, at least for me, the transition was difficult because in college we were kind of taught, like, all right, you come up with, like, a log line. It's you know, jaws in space, like you're trying to like be concise and come up with something that you can describe in a sentence that people are going to go, oh, that sounds great. And so when I would sit down to write short stories, I'd be like, okay. And I'd come up with some like really, really high concept thing, like all right, there's these people in a long distance relationship, but then they invent teleportation and like their relationship is going to fall apart because now they can be in the same place and they're not going to miss each other. And I'd come up with this like idea that I'd be like, okay, that's a cool idea. And then I would just kind of like write something, but I wouldn't on a sentence level, it wouldn't flow well, or I just didn't care about how I was telling the story. It would just be like, this is the concept and I'm going to execute the concept. I wasn't taking care about the artistry of creating it. It was sort of, I can visualize it and I have this cool idea and I'm going to put it on paper instead of really taking care of my craft. Because screenwriting is a different craft. It just didn't quite translate. Like I'd have this big idea and it would just fall flat on the page. And I didn't understand why for a long time. I would submit stories, they would get rejected, and I just I didn't understand what I was doing wrong. And then I took a class, there's um, it's like a publisher slash school I guess in the city called Catapult and they have like six-week courses and I took a class with an author called Rebecca Schiff. It was something about like how to create a good sentence. And that class really like shifted how I approached my work. It just like changed everything about how I sit down and think about when I write, how I craft a sentence, how I approach like concept is different now too. And so that was a big shift. And then after that, it still took me a couple of years to really get to a a place where I felt like my work was good enough.
0: Would it be okay if I read something from The Return? Sure. Because I think maybe... This is the result of what you're talking about. Yeah. It's really short. At first, I think it's the echo of my cries, but it isn't. It's a deep, growling, fast approaching. Two yellow eyes in the complete, total darkness. They find me, and I feel nothing, not even fear. So that's its own paragraph. And then the next section, you find out that it was an ambulance. So does that kind of illustrate, like, you know, you could have just said... And then there was an ambulance.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I mean about, like, in a screenplay, you would say there are two, like, yellow lights and it's an ambulance. It wouldn't matter what the character thinks that they are, unless you wanted to have, like, a shot of it, like, it looks like something else. But that would be, like, visual effects. So it just, you're going to know what an ambulance looks like if you're seeing it visually versus if you're it's on the page i write close first person so what has the character just been through where is their head at are they going to recognize what's coming at them in the state that they're in yeah it's just it's a different beast. yeah
0: like if you had submitted that in a screenplay it's too
1: flowery <laughs> it would be like this is too flowery i mean i had i had professors you'd go through and you'd cross out. You don't need this, you don't need this. The economy of space in a screenplay is you're trying to tell a story and it needs to be exciting. A director and an actor wanna read it and be entertained and enthralled if you're getting too much into the tiny little details about like the flowers on the vase. Unless it's important, the set dresser is gonna be like, you're not gonna do their job for them. So it's just different how you approach it and what the focus is. I'm still very dialogue heavy in my writing, especially in The Return, it's a lot of dialogue. So I think it's still some of my habits I took with me.
0: How do you establish relationship dynamics between four people without a lot of dialogue? I kind of feel like I know what they think about each other from all the dialogue, you know?
1: that's That was my hope. <laughs> um, to me if if you're gonna have a group of friends there's gonna be a a lot of dialogue it was kind of natural to me from my screenwriting background and it just kind of fit the story i was telling
0: i think i'm the right audience too though like some of the references i know that not everybody would get like uh you referenced hot topic at one point (laughs) yeah and that was like a place, when I was a kid, that was a place where like, I would be excited to go there.
1: I'd still be excited to go to Hot Topic.
0: <laughs> like, I remember that'd be really the well, one store. I'd be like, if we're going to go, if you're going to make me go, I at least want to go to Hot Topic. <laughs> and there wouldn't be it. A- like, I didn't even fit in at Hot Topic. I just, I don't know. I just liked doing <laughs> something that was weird and not normal in context to the rest of the mall or whatever. Yeah. Because of references like that, I feel like I'm fitting the demographic.
1: I definitely, you know, and everybody hates millennials, but I definitely consider myself a millennial writer, especially The Return as a very millennial book. I like being a millennial. I am what I am and I write what I write. So I'm fine with it. I, I embrace it.
0: I've had that conversation over the last couple years with different shops that I've worked at well first of all it's always like wait what's mil-? somebody always walks in and is like am I a millennial like I was born this day Am I a millennial like what am I just to like set the stage there are multiple interpretations about what exactly the date range is to consider yourself a millennial but there's a lot of gray area there but most of the guys my age feel that they fit into it and uh a lot of like once the conversation gets rolling about like somebody makes a a comment about how shitty millennials are (laughs) the conversation gets rolling and it always turns to what we just did people telling stories about their early 20s and about how they they had a really hard time like finding jobs and getting established only now do i have friends that are like purchasing homes or shopping for homes and talking with my brother he reminds me sometimes too. We kind of got skipped over for a lot of stuff too. Like just keep that in mind. Like, We didn't have a lot of job opportunities. We didn't have a lot of relief when it came to the student loan crisis, if you want to call it that. Yeah. But that always is where the conversation goes to. And that's been with like two or three different shops, which I've had like five or six different groups of people having this conversation. It always goes to like, well, we were kind of skipped over people realized that there were a bunch of problems that needed to be addressed and they addressed them after we were done with them.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, it's tough too because we grew up in the 90s and for the most part, things were pretty great in the 90s. We grew up in like Nickelodeon Pop-Tart paradise. <laughs> yeah. For me, a lot of people I know, their parents didn't pursue the arts because they felt like they couldn't. So they encouraged their kids to pursue the arts. Um, I know for me, my mother didn't pursue an artistic path. She was always so encouraging of me pursuing an artistic path. And it felt doable and it felt reasonable for me to have those dreams. And then to kind of have that bubble burst. I'm very lucky to have, you know, had parental support and to have grown up watching mtv and like feeling like i was safe for the most part so i can't really complain it was just i wasn't prepared for the harsh realities of the world and i think they were pretty harsh it was the combination of not having been prepared and having had the whole why do i want to call it Repression. Regression. What is it called? Recession. It is a little bit of all those other things. Recession, yes.
0: (laughs) Or resulted in it. Yes.
1: I think it was the combination of those things, like pursue your dreams, children, and then we're like, okay. And then we graduate and they're like, (laughs) sorry.
0: I got a lot of like, what's so hard? Yeah. I don't understand what's so. Not from my parents at all. My parents were very supportive. My family's very supportive. Outside my family, I did get some. know what's so hard and I find it relieving when we get into those conversations it's relieving to be reminded maybe we didn't just it wasn't just like we messed up and made the wrong choices or whatever it was also a lack of opportunity and a lot of turmoil in the economy but certainly I I think it would be hard for our parents generation to relate
1: yeah and I think that's kind of also what I get into in the return where I think previous generations, there seemed to be more of a blueprint. To me, I'm glad that that's not my path. Like I wasn't expected to get married right away or to have children or, you know, to settle down and get a house when I was 22. I'm very grateful that that wasn't an expectation that was put on me and that I wasn't pressured to do that or made to feel wrong for not doing that. But when I graduated, my close friends, they all took completely different paths. Because of that, I think it like it's not like we all graduated from our like women's college and like moved into the same neighborhood and like were able to maintain those friendships. Like I think maybe past generations had an easier time of well now we're gonna have kids and be friends with like everybody in our mommy's group. It was a little bit more chaotic and you know, I had one friend who had, got married and had kids right away. I had one friend who moved to Los Angeles. I had two friends who were in the city with me and one was an actress who was working as a waitress and we lived together but I never saw her because she was gone nights and I was gone during the day. So it was just this like strange chaos uh, and because we didn't have set paths there was a lot of comparison a lot of jealousy A lot of things that I didn't really know how to deal with and I don't think they knew how to deal with and we struggled to be honest with each other about how we were feeling because I think there was a lot of shame in the choices we were making and where we were at. Part of that was you know some of my friends were doing better and could like afford to do certain things and go on vacations and my friend who had kids was like why aren't you visiting me and like I can't (laughs) like I can't come and visit you not it's not because they don't want to there's just a lot of like a lot of struggles and a lot of feeling alone none of us knew how to talk about it and that's basically how the return came to be the origin story of that book was me trying to talk about those things
0: Come on back next week as we continue the conversation about some of the characters and inspiration for Rachel's book, The Return. I recommend reading it before you listen next week. In the show notes, there's a link to Rachel's website, rachel-harrison.com. You can find her novels and short stories there. Please leave us a review if you have time. Thanks for listening to On My Own Dime, and have a great week out there on planet Earth.